So before Tim comes to speak to us, I'll read our passage, which is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31. And I'm sure Steve will pull it up on the screen for you all to see. It's entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. Starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. His sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Invite Tim up and I'll pray for you, Tim. Dear Lord, thank you for Tim that uh, he has come to share your word with us this morning on this challenging passage. And Lord, we just pray for your spirit to work through his preparation as uh, he shares with us, uh, I'm sure, some challenges. Lord, may our hearts be open and listening to you this morning. In your name. Amen. Thank you, Tim. And uh, it's just that I might say a little bit about myself, because you won't know me. Well, my name's Tim, as you probably picked up. And uh, my church believes today that I'm on overseas mission, because I'm from Cornwall, uh, Salt Touch. So they're praying for me in my overseas uh, mission today. And today has been a humbling experience already for me this morning, uh, because my wife has been telling me for ages that I've got a bit of a bold spot coming. And uh, sitting in the front row with the camera pointing behind me, I now know what she means. Um, 
My wife, Michelle, she's an Anglican vicar, so we are a bit of a strange couple, but she is the chaplain at Marjon University here in Plymouth, and we have two children, uh, Joe and Barney. So our life is full of joy and wonder as we have two uh, boys that keep us nice and busy. But it's good to be with you here today. And uh, a few weeks ago, Luke sent me the passage, uh, Luke 16. He said, Tim, you can preach on any part of Luke 16 that you want to. And any sane person would have looked at the first part and thought, oh, yes, you know, the parable of the shrewd manager, using our gifts, making sure we serve God. Surely that's the most obvious passage to go for. But as I looked at that passage, my eyes were just drawn down to this bit just below. In the Bible, we have to understand there's lots of different genres. There's wisdom literature, there's historical literature, there's parables. And here in this passage today, we have a continuation of a parable. Jesus started off with the parable of the shrewd manager, and here we have the parable of Lazarus. It's an interesting parable, I'll be honest with you, it's not one that I've been taught in Sunday school that often. It's not one that I've seen preached on that often at all. You see, what we have in paraphrase is this character of Lazarus. And he is a poor person. We're probably even led to believe that he has leprosy. And uh, we learn that his life's not that great. And we know that because if the only thing in the passage about you is written, the dogs came and licked his sores, you know life is not particularly treating you that well. I have a dog. And if my wife came home one day and said, how's your day been, Tim? And I said, well, the dog licked my foot. I know it's not been a particularly great day. But Lazarus is risked off by Abraham to go and sit in the right hand and to be in heaven. And then we meet this rich man who has no name. But this rich man has been living a wonderful life. So much so that Lazarus was under his table trying to get the scraps like the dogs would. And he is whisked off to Hades. Now, if you want to talk about Hades, hell, and all those kind of things, I hear Luke is really happy to do that. So have a chat with Luke, and he can explain that all to you. He told me specifically this morning that he'd happy to have that conversation. But I'm not going to go into that, the different ways in which the Bible sees that. But in this parable here, he's whipped off to Hades. And it's so much not a nice place that his request is, could Lazarus just dip his finger and just cool my tongue? I mean, that means it's not a nice place at all. And then he says, well, go and warn my brothers. Go and tell them I don't want them to end up like I do. Go and warn my family. And Abraham says, well, surely if they don't believe the prophets, who are they going to believe? And for me, this passage at that moment becomes a bit scary, a bit worrying for us as people of faith. Because the paraphrase of what the rich man is saying is, I didn't know. No one told me. I didn't know about Jesus. He's telling, go and warn them, go and warn my brothers, because no one told me, go and tell them. And for me, that's a scary moment. Because all of a sudden, it hits home. 
This is no longer just a passage, a parable written many, many years ago. It has a real relationship with here and now. Because I reckon there are a world of people out there on our doorstep. I could probably throw a stone from this church. I won't, don't worry. But I could throw a stone and there will be someone who said, but I didn't know. I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know about faith. I didn't know about God's love. And if I could throw a stone from this church, and that's not a criticism on you, don't worry, I could throw a stone from anywhere, from my church, from your street, from where you live, your next door neighbor, and there will be people who say, but I don't know. I didn't know. Chapter 16 that we're looking at today is a direct response, I believe, to the previous chapter, chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the chapter of the lost stories, the lost son, the lost coin, the lost parable. And in chapter 15, we read about these people who are lost or the situation's lost, and we're led to believe and we celebrate that they are found. But chapter 16 goes on from that to say, it's great for those who have been found, but we need to recognize there are many, many more out there who will say, I did not know. Chapter 15 reminds us that we need to use our gifts, our wisdom to show those who uh, have been lost that they can be found. We need to find ways of doing that. And here we get to chapter 16 again. It's about using our gifts, serving the right person, as the beginning of chapter 16 will say. But then going on to realize that the job is not done. Yes, we celebrate when one person comes to faith. The times where I'm great, it's great that Luke's doing baptistry classes. And um, when that baptism is open, you will celebrate and you will give thanks for those people who say, yes, I am found, but don't stop there. Because chapter 16 reminds us the job is not over. There are still those who are saved, but I did not know. Now, if the church ever loses its way, Luke 15 and Luke 16 are great passages to come back to, to what the church is about. Seeking the lost, giving them the great news of Jesus Christ, the hope, the resurrection power, but never then thinking, job's done, great, we can switch off, let's go home now. Because there are still people out there who will say, but I did not know. I spoke earlier about my uh, children. Uh, my son, Joe, is 11 years old. And when he was first born, and I, I, I'm at the age now with my children where I have to ask permission to use these stories. Um, so I have asked permission, and he's fine. But when he was just a couple of days old, my sister visited as a family. You know those days when you could visit one another and there was no problem? And my sister came and visited uh, my wife, and Joe would have been one or two days old. And she brought with him Dumbo. Now, Dumbo is a quite frankly, these days smelly, but it's a little rag toy. It's not even a teddy, it's just a rag type thing that Joe has had ever since. 
and he loves that teddy, something chronic. And I have to confess that when I was his age, even at 11, I had a similar rag, and he, so he takes right after me. It's good to confess those things before you now. But he, he loves this thing. And about three years ago, we lost Dumbo. There were tears, and that was just me, to be honest, thinking, how are we going to ever find it back? But there were tears. There was sadness. And we looked all over the place. And as parents, you go, oh, it's okay. You use those famous words. It will turn up somewhere. It'll be fine. Weeks and days rolled into weeks, weeks into months. And Dumbo still was never to be found. So much so that we went to eBay and found one for, quite frankly, an extortionate price and brought it as a replacement. But it was still never quite the same. Well, one day when we were clearing up, as you do once a year, um, we decided we were going to take down a desk. And this desk had literally less than an inch clearance underneath it. And lo and behold, when we took that desk out, what was underneath but a very dusty, a very dirty Dumbo. That's chapter 15, The Lost and the Found. Chapter 16 is about being messengers. And at the moment when I found, or we found, a debate between me and my wife who found it, found Dumbo, the joy was then to say, Joe, come here. I've got a message for you. A message of joy. I didn't quite say it in these words, you'll understand, but a message of joy and a message of happiness. And the face that he pulled was joy, tear, relief, sadness, all rolled into one. That's the message of chapter 16. That our job and our joy is to share the message of Jesus Christ, to be the messengers, so that no one can say, I did not know. That if that parable was to be played out around the streets of hope, around the streets in Saltash, around any situation, that someone did not say, but I did not know. I'm going to be slightly controversial now. And you can come and argue with me later or tell Luke that you never want me to step, step foot inside your church ever again. <clears throat> I want you to just answer this question in your head. Who's responsible for your discipleship, for your worship, and for your care? Can I give you the answer? You are. Not the church. The church is here to facilitate, yes, completely. But you are responsible. With the church over lockdown at Saltash, we have talked about the fact that pastoral care is not someone else's job, it is our job. It is the job of ourselves to pastorally care as well. So that if you feel that you haven't been given the correct, appropriate um, kind of I don't know what the word I'm for, but you haven't been phoned, you haven't been spoken to. It's a two-way thing. If you can moan about the fact you haven't been spoken to, instead of moaning, pick up the phone and speak to someone. One of the dangers, and I don't know the setup of hope, so you'll, you can really lynch mob me here later. One of the dangers is that we set up pastoral care teams, and they're great, don't get me wrong. 
But the danger is the church looks at them and goes, ah, they're the pastoral care team. They're the professionals. They're the ones who do the pastoral care. I don't need to be involved. Well, the reality is all those things are our own responsibility. Why do I say this? Because the role of the church is to not babysit Christians. It's not to necessarily try and keep those happy that are in the church already and to make sure they're happy and okay and that's lovely. The role of the church is to be messengers of the gospel for those who don't know. The danger sometimes is that church's energy, church's time, and all those kind of things go so much into trying to make all the lovely Christians in church happy, content, and make sure they're okay, that there's no energy and there's no time to do the thing that we are called to, which is being messengers of the gospel so that no one can say, I did not know. Our primary calling is to worship God. But I would say that the second calling is not necessarily maintaining all that we do. The second calling is to be the messengers of Jesus Christ. Our Sunday morning worship shouldn't just be about appeasing those who are in the church already shouldn't just be about making sure that everyone's happy, that everyone's had a song that they like this week, that the preacher doesn't go on too long, that the tea and coffee are not too bad afterwards. Those things don't matter. What matters is that if someone walked in and sat down, that they could understand, they could relate. The words in the song that we sing actually make sense to people that don't grow up in church and have Christianified language that only we understand, that are welcome, that all we are welcomes the stranger. I love the story of the pastor who was preaching one Sunday and led the service. And I'll tell you now that putting a service together is a really difficult job because you're aware that someone's going to moan about something. And quite frankly, I don't care anymore because as long as it's about worshipping God, that's fine. But the preacher who uh, put the service together stood at the back of the door and uh, as they did in those days, shook everybody's hand and, you know, thank you, lovely service, lovely service. And someone said... Lovely service, uh, Minister, but I didn't enjoy the songs today. And the minister reflected and turned around to them and said, well, it's a good job we weren't worshipping you then, wasn't it? And that's the point. It's not about us thinking, oh, I've had a lovely time. It's about worshipping God and realising that all we are and all we do should be proclaiming that message. And if you think sometimes church is too dumbed down, too simple, may I say that there are other places that, or other times in the week that you can go into more depth. But this Sunday morning should be accessible for everyone, a shop window into the message that we have that Jesus Christ is good news. The gospel is for all people. And it's only going to be heard is if we as churches stop messing around and trying to create a nice little cosy club that everybody feels happy in and take seriously, seriously the role of being a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us.
You know, the pandemic, we, we never wish the pandemic happened for one moment. And I will sit here and say, I do not believe in a God that will send a pandemic. What I do believe in is a God who can use this pandemic for his glory to bring people to know him in a new way. But this pandemic has given us a time to rest, to reset, to have a different pace of life. I remember six months ago thinking, oh, I haven't got to run my children round to 120 different clubs during the week. Oh, I'm never gonna go back to that again. What's happening now? I'm running them to 120 clubs a week. But it's given us a chance to set and focus. And it's challenged the church to do things differently. And that has been great. But the question has to be, will it challenge us to just do things differently? Or will it challenge us to be different? There's a difference between doing things differently and being differently. Doing things differently means that we can now put things online. We could have done before, but we never saw the need of him. But being differently is a change of heart, a change of mind that says, yes, maybe God is calling of us to be different. I was saying this morning, and I'll go on record saying this, the churches, I believe, the churches that respond to God's call of being and doing different will thrive and grow. Those churches that just want to go back to how things were before, I think they're going to struggle big time. The introduction of technology has been wonderful, helping preachers realize that their wife was right, they do have bold spots. But reaching more people than ever before has been great. We've taken down a barrier. Those who are disabled have found new ways of connecting in churches that they never have before. Those people who struggle with others and crowds have found new ways of connecting. And the question is, that's our way of doing something differently. But how do we be different that means that those people, when they're online, are as welcome as those who are in the building when we can come back to being altogether and normal? What does that mean? I am a, a, a Baptist through and through, and I might even have a regional minister watching today, so I've got to be careful what I say. Um, but one of the roles I have... In, in the Baptist, in South West is, is pastorally caring for the ministers in, uh, the Baptist ministers in, in Plymouth. So I do some care for, for Luke and others. And it's a privilege to do that. But one of the questions that we have to ask is this whole idea of pastoral care, doesn't it? Because actually, how do we care for those people who are online watching? How are they a much a part of what's going on in the building? What does membership or partnership in this church look like for those who are online? You know, I'm going to give you an example. What about Doris? Doris is a person who's been watching online for many years. Oh, well, not many years, but since you've been doing this now. And she's attending all that she can and she's giving. And there's Brian who turns up every Sunday and he's a partner, but quite frankly, he doesn't pull his weight and everyone thinks, well, what's the point of him being a partner? The question we have to ask is, who's more of a partner? 
And what does that look like? And what does it mean for us to be a church together like that? And yes, it's been a Baptist church membership for me is important, but we've got to look at how we do that differently and how we therefore be different. Maybe we need to look at the barriers that we've been putting up in the rest of the church that stop people from coming, from accessing, or even those people that say, but I didn't know. I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know what happens on a Sunday morning. Don't promote the name of Hope Baptist Church. Promote the name of Jesus Christ, that people might know that there is a way. So what does this look like? Well, I think that as we start to look at church coming back, the focus has to be on the other. Not on what I want, not on what would be nice, but focus on the other. The other being the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Being the person that could turn around legitimately to you and say, but I didn't know because you didn't invite me. You didn't break the barriers down. You put barriers up for me being involved and, and I didn't know. Maybe we need to recognize those who are excluded and share hope. Share the hope of Jesus Christ in their lives. And ultimately making sure that in all we do, no one as far as we are physically and possibly able can say, but I did not know. I did not know. Does the mission, does the energy of the church help that? Is what we're doing as church enabling us to share that message to people who might say, I did not know. My prayer is that God will set a fire in our hearts to reach those people who currently say, I did not know. When they go before the Father, they can't say, send, send, uh, send someone to warn my family. Send, send. That's our job here and now, to tell the world of this hope. This is the role of the church, and this is our calling. May God set the church on fire so that no one will know, say, I did not know. I'm going to invite the band to come up now. We're going to sing a song. When I asked this song to sing, they said, but it's not a very reflective song. And I said, no, I don't want it to be a reflective song. I want it to be a song of power. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. And I know we can't sing here in the building, but maybe just in our hearts, we could just affirm these words. Before the band start playing, there was a lady in my previous church called Stella, a wonderful lady, who taught me a very important phrase in life. She said, Tim, sometimes we have songs and we sing them, but we don't necessarily believe them because the calling is so high. She said, but may the prayer be that even if the words seem too unreachable, may we sing them knowing that they are what we aspire to be. And as we sing this song today, we might think we're not there yet. We can't sing this. Maybe not. But let's aspire that God will set this church on fire. Not physically, clearly but metaphorically, 
set all of our churches, all the churches in this land on fire, that we may stop being babysitters of mature Christians, but reachers of those who need to hear the gospel that may not ever say, I did not know. Amen.